KQED FM 88.5 San Francisco and KQEI FM 89.3 North Highland, Sacramento. I'm Michelle Hennigan and the time is one o'clock. Welcome to City Arts and Lectures, a season of talks and onstage conversations recorded before a theater audience in San Francisco. I'm Linda Hunt. Join me now in hearing some of the most celebrated writers, artists, and thinkers of our day. Our guests are Katrina Vandenhuvel and Adam Gopnik. Vandenhuvel is the editor and publisher of the weekly magazine, The Nation. She is a frequent commentator on American and international politics on ABC's This Week, as well as a regular guest on CNN, MSNBC, and PBS. Her articles appear in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post, where she also writes a column for the paper's op-ed page. In addition, she writes a blog for The Nation called Editor's Cut. Vandenhuvel is the author of Dictionary of Republicanisms and co-editor of the books Voices of Glasnost and A Just Response. Her latest book is Meltdown, How Greed and Corruption Shattered Our Financial System and How We Can Recover. Adam Gopnik has written for The New Yorker since 1986. His work for the magazine has won both the National Magazine Award for Essay and the George Polk Award for Magazine Reporting. His books include Paris to the Moon, Angels and Ages, and the young adult novel, The Steps Across the Water. On November 17, 2010, Katrina Vandenhuvel visited the Herbst Theater in San Francisco to be interviewed on stage by Adam Gottnick. Join me now for a conversation with Katrina Vandenhuvel. Welcome. Uh, last night I saw a uh, writer of yours, Calvin Trillin, who's often been a companion of mine at this, at this stage. And he said to ask you, how is it that a nice girl like you would end up running a pinko rag in New York City? <laughs> so, Mr. Trillin, we love Mr. Uh, we have a joke so, at the nation, I'm sorry, just yeah, that he, yeah. uh, like, he used to say that uh, writers got paid in the high two figures. <laughs> Um, and he, I think he's made so much money off that line <laughs> that he owes the nation, Victor Navasky, uh, some of that um, pinko rag. Yeah. Right. So how did, it, how did you come to be running this pinko rag? Uh, there was a little pinko in how I came to the nation. Um, I, um, I uh, grew up in New York City, but I spent a lot of time in uh, Los Angeles, in Hollywood. My grandfather was involved with the movie industry, and um, he was I, a great figure in the in the movie industry. 
Well, his great passion was he was an ophthalmologist, and he booked bands on the side, Benny uh-huh. Goodman and others, and then he finally realized he couldn't be an ophthalmologist, so he went into uh, the music business and MCA. Yeah. But that classic American ophthalmologist mogul. Mogul, <laughs> yeah, that... that, that um, Everyone has. That's right. In their life. Um, but I got it in my head partly through um, my work in college. I was very interested in the McCarthy period. I had heard my grandfather railing against Dalton Trumbo and all the shenanigans of communism at the Hollywood canteen. And um, I also uh, studied at uh, university with someone who had been editor of The Nation, and then Victor Navasky, who was writing his book then, some of you may have read, called Naming Names, which was a great study of informers, informants, uh, and the, uh, the morality and politics of the McCarthy era seen through the prism of the Hollywood tenant of Hollywood. Anyway, so I did a lot of work on that, and I went to become an intern at The Nation. And um, what, what year was 1980. Um, it was in one of the first years, and it is now that intern program is in its 32nd year. Um, I spoke earlier about how it's graduated people like the Labor Leader Party, uh, Labor, Labor Party leader Edward Miliband, and the Deputy Prime Minister of Britain, but also great writers like Alexander Steele, Amy, Amy Wilentz. In fact, our Washington editor for many years, David Korn, who's now the Washington editor for Mother Jones, graduated. I became an intern in 1980. And you had been, you'd done work, you'd been writing about the, the McCarthy, period. Ten, McCarthy period in Hollywood. And I, in fact, worked on a documentary when there was a documentary division in mm-hmm. Network News at ABC News. It was called Close Up. And uh, I worked as a production associate on a one-hour, this is hard to believe these days, a network documentary on the American on the McCarthy period called the American Inquisition. Um, an, an American Inquisition television network. ABC a, News, one hour, prime time. This was during the time. news period this of was when, television news. Right? This was before Mickey Mouse right, in the, took over they, ABC. Right. Uh, um, but I just wanted one thing yeah. I did as, editor, as, as an intern, which I think prepared me to be an editor uh, briefly, was as an intern I archived the papers of Kerry McWilliams, one of the great editors of the nation, who is a great figure of California history. Joan Didion thinks that the book he wrote, called An Island on the Land, is maybe the greatest book about California in the 20s. He was the commissioner of immigration what, what, and housing. What years was he the editor of? of 1955 to 1978. Mm-hmm. But he had a whole life in the state. He was the commissioner of housing and immigration. Mm-hmm. He stood on Liberty Hill with Upton Sinclair, as, you know, Upton Sinclair was arrested for reading the Constitution. He then went to New York, thought he would stay for a year to edit a special issue on civil liberties during the McCarthy era, era, and he stayed. Um, But I was an intern, I left, uh, and I came back as an assistant editor in 1984, and then I stayed for a few years, and then went to be uh, really the nation's correspondent in in Moscow, beginning Mm -hmm. in about 19... Um, 88 to 92, living with my husband in Moscow, Stephen Cohen. And um, that was a, you know, I was an editor at Liberty and at Large and uh, came back as editor in 94 when Victor Novasky went uh, to the Harvard Business School to better understand how to run an iconoclastic business like the nation. He uh, went on leave, asked me to step into his shoes which cannot be filled, and I stayed on, and he came back and the, there was a grand uh, transition. But he, well, I'd love to talk about Russia, because I think that's a part of your work in your life that, that's, that's fascinating and has maybe been moved 
to one side, not just in your concerns, but in the concerns of uh, the country. But before, before we do, I, we should talk about, about recent events, I would, I would think. I knew that when we made this date to talk together, it was sort of up there. And it was pretty much guaranteed that it would be after the deluge. It would be sort yeah. of post-catastrophe. It would be yeah, after. <laughs> we can we think sort of different. Of, yes, of, the, of, of ways of thinking of it. You've written uh, in the last few weeks, you've written a lot of things about uh, the election particularly, but also about a progressive program. Here's a question. Let me, before we even go there, I'll ask you a more basic philosophical question. You write as a progressive. That's a term you use and that the nation uses about itself often. I write for a magazine that's kind of the embodiment of wishy-washy liberalism, <laughs> where the, where the, where the, the weak-kneed, um, limp-rag version of, uh, of the American left. How do you see the difference between progressivism and liberalism? Well, if I could step back for a moment, and I, I disagree with your characterization of the New Yorker. No, no, no. <laughs> um, the Nation is first and foremost an, um, an independent magazine. Um, we were founded as such. Uh, the original prospectus is the Nation will not be the sect or organ of any party. Or uh, And, you know, in, within the pages of the Nation, as you said, Adam, you see the debates within... Mm a big tent community. So we have liberals, progressives, leftists, anarchists, leftists, conservatives yes. with a conscience. Um, we have a full... Oh, we're, we're, who, well, uh, I mean, one of the this? founders of the Heritage Society. I know, that's hard to find. We find them. <laughs> we find them few and far between. We're going to cultivate a new breed. Um, I that's guess in my, the small ads in the back, right? In the, right. They're for the but, small classifieds. <laughs> right. um, but I, I, do, I do say that because we take issue, for example with um, the Democratic Party on, you know, the, the, on core issues, whether it was Iraq or today Afghanistan. But pro my, I guess if I had to, a dividing line between liberalism and progressivism, and it's a big issue because these terms have meant different things over, over time, time today. Right. But I think that progressives have a, a stronger belief in the capacity of ordinary people, average people, to organize their own matters, that there is within the progressive tradition a kind of um, a populist spirit, mm -hmm. whereas liberals, good liberals, but liberals sometimes fall more closely into the elite camp, believing that people need to be better mm -hmm. organized because they can't manage mm -hmm. their own best interests. I guess I would put it slightly different. I think since liberals know they are incapable of organizing their own lives, they are skeptical about the ability of anyone organizing, right. organizing life in general. I mean, it but, does frustrate me that yes. liberals often, more so than anyone, and I think, again, this is a time for conviction, and that has defined the nation as well, is liberals so often fail to take their own side in an argument. Yes, that, that's defining trade, I think, in fact, of, of, of And liberal. there's much to work with and yes. that is frustrating the opportunity squandered uh, in not taking your own side well then that, that leads us directly to current events and because would it be fair to say that's part of the progressive and particularly of your critique of the first two years of Obamaism that, that Obama is an example of someone who refuses to take his own side in an argument and negotiates with himself before he yeah. ever negotiates with anyone else let me just uh, uh, a week after the election of 2008, which inspired so many, and especially young people who saw in Obama what you must never see in a politician, in my view, which is you fall in love with a politician, he or she is a messiah, um, that people 
had to understand that Obama, well, that progressives needed to be as tough, pragmatic, and clear-eyed about President Obama as he was about us. And I think that has held true. Uh, but it is the case, I think, President Obama, as William Grider, our national affairs correspondent, wrote in the last issue in a, in a strong piece tough called o Obama Without Tears. He, he's an intensely intelligent man. But and he is not faith-based, but the reality of these last two years is he's been rolled by these, you know, right-wingers, the Republicans, who have no interest in working with him, who want to take him down, who want to destroy his presidency, and yes, change the culture of Washington, but don't do it on these terms of bipartisanship. That, t that boat has sailed, and it is now time to find a way to be tough and stand strong and um, take your own side. And there may be areas where you work together. It is increasingly difficult with this Republican Party. But find those bright lines. Stand tough. Stand your ground. And I think that is where uh, so many progressives left have been so frustrated. Putting aside some core issues, for example, the, on the financial crisis, if I could, we have had in the pages a lot about what could have been done. And, you know, of course, we're sitting where we're sitting. We're not where he, President Obama was. But to have brought in Larry Summers and Timothy Geithner and to have rescued but not reformed or reorganized the banks, not put demands on the banks when you could have, I think ceded the ground for the right-wing populism we see in the Tea Party, though many of the Tea Party... It's, in my view, it's sort of plutocrats posing as populists. But to have ceded that populist energy to the right is political malpractice. Well, let me, if that's the progressive critique, yes, no. Um, and, and let me just add, if I read you a right in, I think it was last week's issue, you say that you believe also that Obama can act, continue to act, with more executive authority than he seems sometimes to to want to. I'm, yeah, I do, and I think there are certain key areas, and I'll mention one because um, uh, we were talking earlier about the environment. I'm wary of that on some level because of what we saw under President George W. Bush, mm -hmm. uh, the signing statements, etc. But I think, for example, we now have in the new House what I would call a climate denialist caucus very dangerous and we're going to see the swift voting of climate science and climate scientists in ways we have not seen and it's been pretty ugly in these last couple mm -hmm. years i think president obama and i'm here in california where this state has led the way on good initiatives on greenhouse gas emissions but he could use his executive authority to protect the power of the epa to regulate greenhouse emissions. It was a power given really to the administrator of the EPA, Lisa Jackson, by the Supreme Court interpreting the clean air decision. Anyway, there are a number of things he could do, uh, for example, on labor organizing, on a, on a whole slew of things. So, I, you know, but I, I think the key is people, my sense is people don't like to see a president rolled. Right. That's what Bill Grant, you know, rolled by the banks, bankers, rolled by generals, rolled by blue dogs, rolled by Mitch McConnell and John Boehner. This is, this is what Gary Wills describes as omnidirectional placation as a, as a strategy. It's like when, if you've ever run a uh, birthday party for three-year-olds <laughs> and you're constantly just trying to make every person in the room content and the birthday cake never that's gets right, rolled out. That's that's right. that, 
Um, well, I mean, but this, the, my, my husband always sometimes accuses me. He says, well, he does. He says, you're in the wrong job, Katrina, because it is true. I, you know, I like to be liked. Right. Wrong job. Right, um, right. But to be, you know, you're not, you, there's a sense that President Obama wants to, con you know, to be the leader of a seminar right. or to, you know, the cerebral quality is very appealing. But then there's a time to show that you have the power and lead. I, this is certainly true. And certainly it does seem as if he came to power thinking that being president would be like being president of the Harvard Law Review, where your own goodwill and right. obvious decency and intelligence would yeah. bring people together and only the fringes would be excluded. But if that's the progressive critique of two years of Obama, can I offer the wishy-washy liberal defense for for? But could for I just you? say before sure, I do that, that what's in the nation, if you asked three or four of our leading right. political correspondents, you would get three or four different views. One view laid out in a major piece by Eric Alterman, our media right. correspondent, is one that I think is very close to what one of your main political correspondents, Rick Hertzberg, argues, which is that the Obama administration has exposed and highlighted these systemic, deep structural obstacles to change in yes. our system. And I'm a believer in that. I'm a total wonk when it comes to what needs to be done about the power of money, about the arcane electoral system we operate in. And those systemic obstacles have posed a terrible challenge to Obama. But what I would say as a left progressive right. is that President Obama came in having been elected by many, many in this country, but by a new, what I would call kind of a new majority, energized majority of young people, African-Americans, Latinos, young women, labor. And he demobilized those people after the election. Instead of using that power to counter the forces of money and establishment in D.C., he went for an inside the beltway governance. Maybe he needed to. But that is an alternative explanation and one that has also been in our pages. Well, it strikes me, just as you mentioned it, that Eric Alterman's piece suggested that the real the, the, uh, uh, problem was lay, lay in a certain sense with the media. That, that is with, and Rick Hertzberg's consistent point over 20-some years is always, no, the problem is really essentially constitutional. That is, we live in a fundamentally undemocratic system, yeah. though we refuse to call it that, right. in which it becomes impossible for the majority of Americans to make their, their voices heard. But given that those are the constraints, given that you have Fox News on the one hand and um, an essentially undemocratic system which gives undue electoral weight Wait. to uh, rural areas and, to, and so on, um, couldn't the, the liberal defender of Obama in a squeaky high and nervous voice um, say, look, um, Here's what's happened right, in two years, right? We have national health care. Now, it may, I'm a Canadian. It may not be the national health care that I grew up with or that we dream of. But nonetheless, after 60 years, it's there. Um, we have financial reform. It may not be the financial reform we wanted. But nonetheless, it exists. We have a new START treaty negotiated. It may not be passed, but it's there. We have Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan on the Supreme Court. That's two years worth of work Absolutely. pushing uphill against exactly the constraints and difficulties that you just yes. enumerated. And yet, where a Republican president, the conservative president in that same situation would find from the National Review or the Weekly Standard support, uh, support, support. love, support, love and, and unconditional engagement, uh, a liberal president gets from his progressive base disappointment, disillusion, unhappiness and uh, inactivity. Let me let me suggest that um, 
I agree with all of that. I think one problem is so many of those reforms were diluted because of the power of money and lobbying in this country. But on the other hand, President Obama is a student of history. Um, he has had historians to the White House, Robert Caro and others, people who know the system very well. And I think he has to understand, though it's a different era, that presidents like Roosevelt, presidents like Johnson, understood the power of a left progressive insurgency, for want of a better word, the power of that behind them, at their back, to be a countervailing force against the power of money and establishment, and to have a relationship with those elements. Sure, Michael Kazin, the historian of populism, wrote in our pages, you know, the left wouldn't really be the left if it wasn't vetching about something. I don't love that because I think there is something in a relationship with a president where you are supportive but pushing and mobilizing. I mean, you could argue that Johnson didn't pass some of the legislation. I mean, he, he needed Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement to do some of what he did. Roosevelt needed more militant labor unions and others to push him to be more aggressive. Um, and in so, in so in all of those cases, Famous thing with you need tough love. I mean, you don't want an adoring progressive left. You want one that is saying, we support you, but we also, you know, move in these directions, understanding the constraints. But I think, you know, you're right. The, the last two years have been a period of intense legislative accomplishments, watered down. He might have, you know, and then I would, I think that there, um, this next, he, I could add to your list. Mm -hmm. There have been other things under the radar. There are some great appointments in this administration. They may not have the power, but the big issue I think now, Adam, is um, the economy. And it is unfair in some respects that President Obama is saddled with this. But how could he not, and maybe it's not just Fox, but he could use the powers of his bully pulpit, whatever he wants to call it, because he's not a man who believes in the bully, but to use it to explain where we are going. But how is it that this recovery stimulus has lost any sense of meaning mm -hmm. and that you don't have a fight to show you are on the side of working people of the middle class in this country and you see the populist energy? I come back to that. I think it's, you know, so, but the media on Fox I don't, I don't think Fox is a news organization. It's an adjunct of some remnants of the Republican Party and the Tea Party. But I think that progressives make a mistake in having constant warfare with it. I think we need to have asymmetrical warfare with it and find other ways of communication um, and to do that in smart ways. Okay, and clearly that happened in, in 2008. So how do you respond to people who say... I'm sorry, really? One last thing yeah. I would say is... Um, Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. It's not just Afghanistan. It is, and again, I think here it is a matter of how we end the war on terror, which should never have been a war. It should have been policing, intelligence. And I think President Obama got caught in the template of the war on terror and is now in a situation where he's not only in a war that cannot be won militarily. I do think he has been boxed in by generals. He is a young president, a man who is not 
comfortable with the military, but you have essentially, I would argue, an insubordinate military. You had in McChrystal, you could see it, and now in Petraeus, people who are running their own foreign policies. This is not a war that can be won militarily, and it is a decisive moment for President Obama moving into 2012 as to whether he's going to be a reform president or a, known as a war president. And we've seen this moment before in American history with Lyndon Johnson. He is a reform president, as you laid out in those different mm -hmm. accomplishments. He is trying to improve the conditions of people's lives. But he could lose that in the hills of Afghanistan. As you know, two empires have lost there, and there is... Uh, there are ways out, and he needs, this is where, again, to make it an electoral, electoral issue, a majority of Americans mm -hmm. have turned against this war already, but how do you give him the strength so that that can counter the generals well, and the military and the national well, security could, establishment? Couldn't you argue, though, that in some ways the analogy here isn't so much Johnson as Kennedy, because Kennedy faced... Um, uh, first go around at the time of the Bay of Pigs with his yeah. generals and CIA people, and he was an inexperienced guy, and he knew better, but he let them go ahead, and it was a catastrophe. And the next time around in Cuba, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, yeah. he stood much, much stronger against it and realized that, that in fact, that he, that he had to do that, that he couldn't simply uh, placate uh, uh, the military in that way, and that there is that possibility of it. But the, the broader point and the broader worry is, is that just as Kennedy constantly in his presidency had to sort of row upstream about against being soft on communism. That's something that now has disappeared from our vocabulary. I want to come back to that. In the same way, the power of being soft on terrorism has some of the same kind of paranoid Absolutely. grip on the American imagination. But how you can, f first of all, redefine what security means, but also show that what we are doing is creating insecurity. It's not making us more secure to break that right wing. And I have, you know, Cold War liberal, Cold War liberal mm -hmm. narrative that we are fighting over there in order to be safer here. And, you know, I, but I think people are tired of this war. And that is something to move on. The costs are, you know, the costs of war alone, if you link it to what could be used with that money to rebuild this country and to find a way to regional diplomacy, et cetera, in that. But it is the long war, the danger of a long war, like the Cold War, that I think could mark the decline of this country. That's why I come back. The need to reconceptualize the United States' role in the world. We are no longer the superpower. We are number one in a lot of areas, as you know, we don't want to be number one in, you know, in capital punishment, capital punishment, you know. So how you manage that is a huge undertaking. But um, this is where President Obama had the ability to speak so clearly during the election. But you are right. The fear, the fear of another attack underlies almost everything mm -hmm. that is being done with these policies and to reframe that um, is going to is is probably the most difficult task ahead. I, I think it is partly there's someone here tonight, and he and I have had long talks about the 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 part of what goes on in this country is the failure to have a full debate. And in Washington D.C., where so many of these debates about national security take place. You have vested interests, some of them in defense industries. You have long-term think tanks 
vested interests in maintaining this kind of conflict. And you don't have a voice, uh, as you do in parts of Europe, saying, no, there is an alternative approach to national security which will make us safer, more secure, which will not cost trillions, and must be on the agenda of this country if we are to maintain who we are. And it is that quality of the missing voice that animates me at the nation mm-hmm. on so many fronts because our media, though I participated in, I participate in it and try to do so with dignity. And there are more. Chris Hayes, our Washington editor, is on TV all the time. But to have that alternative voice is critical because if people don't hear it in so many of the media venues they go to, they don't know it exists mm-hmm. and they're not going to sign on or sign up. And our politicians need to hear it, too. And there are some, but not enough. You're listening to Katrina Vanden Heuvel in conversation with Adam Gopnik. This is City Arts and Lectures. Well, coming back to corruption, let's talk about the American media for yeah. uh, uh, a bit. We'll be here all night <laughs> into the um, next morning. We both work for magazines. That's the and made our lives there. And your magazine now has a strong website and thenation.com and so on. Um, magazines represent something particular, though. They represent a belief that you can sort of bundle together, yeah. uh, as you say, not a, a choir of completely obedient voices, but certainly a chorus of different voices that readers will come to. Are we? Is that basically finished? To, to be honest, in other words, are, is the age of the magazine? which began in 1865, in your case, is it over now? Has not the, the, the Internet established individual voices, bloggers, who we come to if we want to, individ- at one on, at a time? Can we really see a bright future for this thing in which we've invested our entire lives? Yes. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. We can see a future. Um, oh, but not a bright one. Well, you, well, you, you lived well, in Russia can, for you know, a long time. I know, I know. Yeah. Um, Here's, you know, I think that, I think there, listen, other, you know, you think of the, the, the talkies, they displace the silent film, but other medium, they come, but they don't necessarily displace. And the internet is here to stay. There's no question. You look around, especially in this city, you look everywhere, people are Kindle and reading in different ways. But a magazine is a kind of community. And I believe that the, you know, the nation, will exist for another 150, 146 years, but in different, it will be on different distribution models. A lot of the, a lot of the lament and grief about journalism today is about the business model. The nation has an iconoclastic business model. Uh, we've been losing money for many years. We, uh, and we, uh, kind of are hybrid and we, uh, are, pu- we're into public interest qu- quality journalism. But that, that magazine format, will remain the anchor. The fact that you can read it in 50 ways on all these new devices, which we are moving on, is partly because we're, we want to make sure that our ideas, our journalism, our writers, are read by as wide a range of people, whether it's in Brazil or by a 16-year-old, so that you move in those directions without forgetting that the anchor is the magazine and this community of voices. But I don't know, the New Yorker... I mean, I respect David Remnick the other day, I think, was quoted. And the weird thing here is you do have a little bit of an alliance with someone I otherwise abhor, Rupert Murdoch, 
which is that, that you're not going to just give away your journalism. You're investing in it, and you're going to find ways, even if you have to re-educate a younger generation, to say, hey, you want to read quality, long-form journalism? It doesn't just come out of the ether. And we're not Gawker. We're not doing journalism by metrics. We have... Uh, we're sending journalists places. We, we, have made a, we have made an intellectual alliance both with Rupert Murdoch and with every Jewish mother in history. <laughs> don't just give it away. We have to, you have to, have to make have to sure someone, yes, yeah, yeah. that someone, is, someone is, is paying for it. Um, yeah, I think that's true. And I think that that is more increasingly what magazines like ours just, are, are moving towards. That is the idea that the only thing that makes sense is to say that it doesn't matter what platform Right. You read our magazine. It's, it's sometimes people refer to it as the HBO model because HBO works that way. That's you can right. watch it on the web. You can watch yeah. it on your TV. You can watch it after the show is on. You can watch it while The Sopranos is on. Like appointment viewing. Right, but you've got to pay. You can't get anything for free. You've got oh. to pay if you're going to watch it. And that's the, uh, and that's the notion that, that, that we, we think of applying. But the problem with that is, and this speaks to the, to the problem of the whole disaggregation, right, as people right. call it, using that jargon of magazines and of media, is that... Um, you have to think that the thing entirely is worthwhile. And the risk, of course, as you know, and this is already happening with Rupert Murdoch's uh, Times in London, as some of you may know, they've gone behind a subscription wall. Right. And what happens is you're then off the web. In other words, yeah. that that new circulation of, of information, of stories, where things do, the, the metaphors right, become viral. Right. Uh, it becomes harder and harder to, to make happen. Uh, and that, I guess, is the, is, is the, is the great question. The, the frustrating thing, I think, and I wonder if you would agree, is that there seems to be this enormous appetite for information. We both have kids in their teens, yeah. and they, far from being apolitical, they're, they're reading. ravenous yeah. reading. But they don't read magazines, yeah. typically, or newspapers. They read... Well, my daughter, we were talking, right. your yes. son subscribes to Rolling Stone. Stone right. My daughter to Us Weekly. Right. <laughs> so they read Jan Wenner. Jan yeah, Wenner is, making, is making, making a fortune money. off of our kids. But um, can we think, it, will that generation have be, can we, make, can we make them loyal to the Nation or the New Yorker or the New York Times? Well, or? I believe there will be a community of readers who will want to sit under a tree or with a magazine or take it to, on the subway or the beach. But, you know, I don't feel that, I feel if people are reading what is in our pages in different, in different formats, I don't. I'm not a purist about it. I mean, I think that we will, f that you, you can, you know, that on some of these devices, you do get the whole magazine. Yeah, I mean, I we, you know, on the iPad or Kindle. So they're just reading it in a different form. And I do think, and I see it among our interns, they are reading the nation in those ways. So I think there is a future. I'll never say a bright future because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, but I, I think there is a future. And, um, I'm excited of being about some of the ways of moving our ideas and our journalism. I'm excited partly because I think there's a great audience also for the nation internationally. And when we do a big story and we get a letter from someone in Brazil or someone in Seoul, Korea reading it, it's a sense that it's a broader community, it's a global community. And that, you know, and, I, and again, the generational issue, we have, um, you know, we have a lot of young people coming. Sometimes it's for their favorite writer, mm -hmm. a Jeremy Scahill or a Naomi Klein. But then they come into it and find others. 
And, you know, we're doing all kinds of things, too. To keep, to yeah, keep yeah, 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 yeah. No, but I'm not, you know, the ages stuff. I mean, why? Have, there's so much attention to young readers and young advertisers. You know, no, I, we, I, we, we live with the <laughs> agent. You know, my son always says, whenever he comes to a reading of mine, he says, I'm going to be sure to bring a defibrillator for, for, <laughs> your, for, for your audience, Don't Dad. Don't let him. <laughs> the, the, the Don't let him. Um, <laughs> I do want to talk to you because you do go on and you do uh, perform with enormous dignity and enormous uh, charm on cable news. You do. You're not frightened of doing that, and you go on and you do those 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 shows. Are they things that progressive, liberal-minded people have to see as uh, the world as it is, which must must be ended, or are they, in some deep structural sense, the enemies of rational discourse? In other words, can you in in five minutes of banging heads, create anything except uh, a fog of misinformation? Um, good question. I think we've seen models where it can work. I think Rachel Maddow has been a model of what you can do of intelligent discussion and um, have guests on and have... Truly fair-minded, too. Fair-minded. <clears throat> I really dislike, and I, I thought a few weeks ago we were seeing less of it, but it seems to be coming back with, you know, the shouting and the food fights. I have been privy and party to quite a few. I will not debate Ann Coulter anymore or some of those people because you just get brought down. Mm -hmm. But I do think um, that, you know, progressives, the left should go on those shows uh, because it's where people are getting their news and try to do so with dignity. And I think, you, you know, you can say something in five minutes. What I regret and the nation's first centerfold I'm not taking you down wrong direction, I promise, was of Octopi, 1996, in a series called The National Entertainment State. And it really kind of laid out what someone like Ted Koppel, I don't know if any of you read this piece Ted Koppel wrote the other day, bemoaning the state of journalism, that we have entered a period where, because of cable TV, basic verifiable facts have ceased to matter. People, as Senator Moynihan once warned, uh, he said once, people have a right to their own facts, but to their own opinions, but not to their own facts. And we're entering a period where people seek the news they want to seek. The problem, if you look at it structurally, is what we looked at in 1996, and it's gotten worse, is that these big corporations, conglomerates, came up, bought these companies. You got GE owning NBC and MSNBC. News centers have become profit commodities not public interest, public good. And how we sort through that, to me, is at the core of our media problem. Great for MSNBC, bad on Fox, but it is what we do about the airwaves, which we own, and what we do about taking back those airwaves. That is the fight of our time. And how we rebuild a media environment that allows for intelligent debate. Now, you may disagree. I think Bill Moyers was able to do that. Absolutely. You know, where you, and, we, and you lived in France. I don't know the country, but there were more spaces for intelligent, not boring. You want intelligent, punchy, edgy conversation where people can agree to disagree. We don't have that. And I think what people therefore see on their screens is the food fight. So they think partisanship is food fight as opposed to partisanship is standing strong for ideas you believe in. And but isn't there a built-in and depressing asymmetry, to use your word, in that as well? And that is that people who are simply prepared to distort the record, say things that are not so, have an enormous advantage in that, yes. in that 
in that world. That is that you can't spend your life correcting things that are simply not so, whether it's about global warming or it's about evolution. And that the, the mainstream media, the lamestream yeah. media, Sarah Palin calls it, therefore gets caught in a trap. I'm thinking of the New York Times, I'm thinking of us, I'm thinking of all Time Magazine, Washington newspaper, Post. not, a, not a, a journal of opinion, which is that it's built into the codes of, yeah. of American journalism that you can't simply say, one side is flawed but right and the other side is just lying. Yes. And that's it's yeah. simply not true. And you therefore end up with Time Magazine running a, an essentially sympathetic cover piece about Glenn Beck, I who's agree. a, a fan. Who I think is, right. you know, over, so over, yeah. in that sense, won't, and this comes back to the thing we were discussing before, in that, in that way, doesn't, uh, uh, intellectually incoherent but, uh, morale driven and unified political group on either side it happens to be on the right in our country. Uh, have just an enormous advantage in those in those fights. Yeah, and well, lying their way to what? I mean, lying their way to power. Um, I think. Um, well, not just that they're that they're prepared to do it, but that we sort of have no anti antibodies. Well, into there are a few more antibodies, I would argue, today than there were, say, in 2000 or 2004. I'm thinking of the Bush, the selection of the president, or you know, the, the different the. There are more voices, but we do need to understand the disadvantage we're at when you have uh, this this fox. Mm -hmm. um, and there are no easy answers. Uh, the danger is, I think, in the principle, and again, you've worked in Europe. The danger is, and I think Koppel fell into this, uh, to go back to him, where he said we need objective journalism. I don't think there is objectivity. I think there's a myth of objectivity. I think what you need is fair and accurate, but you need to be open about your views. The danger in our country, and Eric Altman writes about this, is the mainstream media, the lamestream. I mean, I hate to agree, but you, they're worked by the refs, as he says, and what you get is this view that objectivity is sort of something equidistant between Hitler and Jefferson. No, no. You've got to call it out. You got to say these are the facts and not just rest on this idea of a false objectivity that the right works and works well and distorts and deforms our politics. So there's, there, there's more going on to monitor, but there has to be, I, there's a larger philosophical problem and this is your terrain, Adam. <laughs> but no, I mean, really, when I said earlier, what happens in a culture, in a society, in a politics, when basic verifiable facts seem to cease to matter. Yes, absolutely. And at that point you're left with how you navigate and what you can do to advance. I think that that's, you know, and I just to add, I don't think it's a, it happens to be, I think, a phenomenon of the right in this country, but there were moments in the history of France when it was a phenomenon of the left, when refusal to look the reality of Stalinism in the face, for instance, was terribly disabling to the French left for, for many years. But I do think it's a, it's a central problem. I want to open up to some questions soon, but I want to throw you a, a bit of a curveball, if I may, and that is to talk a bit about arts coverage yeah. in the nation yeah. and, and yeah. The cultural coverage. I was reading old issues and looking back in the history of your magazine, and there was a moment in the 1940s when uh, the nation had uh, Clement Greenberg as the art critic, uh, James Agee as its movie critic, and Randall Jarrell as its poetry critic. It was probably the best lineup outside the Yankees that any, uh, I should say the Giants, shouldn't I? Um, um. That any, 
that any magazine has ever had in the back of the book. It was probably it was the 1940s, probably the single best cultural section you would ever come upon. Um, but one of the one of the the principles of it in, in those years was that it had to be a non, essentially a non-political section or a non-politicized section. Is that possible now? And do you still see the role of arts and culture coverage as essential to the mission of your magazine? I do, and it is. Um it not, I mean, you and you, Harold Clerman was the theater critic. Um, That's right. Diana Trilling was. Uh, there was a period in the uh, sort of the McCarthy period when the front of the book, the front of the book and, and the back of the book were at war, right. where you had the book reviewer assigning reviews to Arthur Schlesinger Jr., while the front was, you know, attacking his book, The Vital Center. Um, but the, the back of the book is um, the editor, John Palatella. Is, is interested in other questions. He's not as interested in the politics of the front. So, for example, you have a review in this past week's issue of uh, Timothy Gart Nash mm -hmm. and his essays, Facts and the Collection, Facts are Subversive. But we still, in my view, have one of the great lineups. Arthur Danto, our art critic, just resigned. Arthur uh, didn't resign. He stepped down for health, but he still writes for us. Stuart Klawans, who won a National Magazine Award a few years for his film criticism. And... Uh, Barry Schwabsky, the new art critic, and the history of poetry, Robert Lowell, um, Adrian Rich, others uh, who were uh, poetry editors over the years. So it remains a part of the and back of the book. One of America's finest poets, my friend Katha Pollitt, writing a political Katha column. Pollitt. And Katha reminds me, when she began her column, one of the ideas and one of the, I think, the beauties of the nation is the ability to bring artists and writers to bear on the issues at hand of the day. So, for example, E.L. Doctorow writes for us about the politics of the moment. Gore Vidal is a contributing writer. Tony Kushner, a member of our editorial board, I think is brilliant when we can get him to write not just about theater, but about um, what is, you know, the gay rights debate. He wrote one of the great essays called The Socialism of Our Skin, which was a... a it's interesting now to think of it. It was a response to Andrew Sullivan. This was about 15 years ago, 20 years ago even. But Tony Kushner arguing against gay marriage mm -hmm. because of the patriarchy of marriage. Now, it's shifted. He's, he's married he's now. Married he's married, married now. Married. He's married. But it, it had a history in the left. It was rooted in the mm -hmm. left. Anyway, to get a lot of right, to get writers and artists, uh, I think it's in the great tradition of the left, too, uh, and in the tradition of the nation, to have artists involved in the in the in the not just the politics but the political cultural moment. Right. And do you, is there any kind of silver lining in being back in in opposition? I'm Could I just say yeah. one thing? One thing I feel, and I'm trying to do more, is um, I'm I'm a, I'm a, I have to admit I'm a philistine. I'm a, I'm a lover of popular culture. So, you know, I wish we had more television criticism. Mm -hmm. John Leonard used to write TV criticism for us and for New York Magazine. Um, and I'm always trying to find ways to bring that into the magazine and in thenation.com because I do think, you know, you can argue what the water cooler moments of another period were, but people are watching different things. I admit I don't watch much of Mad Men, but I watch... True Blood. I'm, you know, watching The Big C. I watch Weeds. I watch and Dexter. Broad, I watch all, you know, no, and it's, you know, it's a bad, it's a bad moment when watching Dexter is a calming experience <laughs> at the end of a week. Um, but so, 
I also, I'm, you know, I'm the second woman editor. Frida Kirshway was uh, the editor in the very fraught period of Cold War, 1930s, 40s. But I'm the first editor to bring on a sports editor at the nation. And I believe that sports is a great, you know, it's a, it has so many facets to it. And it's, it's part and, of our culture. And is, in Olmsted's phrase, part of the commonplace civilization that's right. of our time. Part of the... the the, that's that's so, terrific. So Dave Zirin, yeah, some of you may so know him. We'll we love to, yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll 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 look forward to that even more. Let me turn up the lights if we could, and I'd love to invite you all to join in this conversation. Um, look for somebody walking down an aisle with a microphone, and they will come to you, and we would love to to get your questions. Given what's just happened in the midterms, what do you think is? Um, what is a good result? What, what does success look like from a progressive point of view for the next two years of the Obama administration? Should we just be happy with hanging on to the achievements that are there, or can we actually expect progress in some real areas? It's a good question. I think uh, two, two levels to that. One is that it's, it's, there are going to be a lot of defensive struggles, a lot of defensive struggles to hold would have, what's been accomplished, as Adam ticked off earlier, in the first two years. Um, but I think that um, you need, you, you know, you're going to need to essentially protect um, programs from the rollback. I mean, literally, these Republicans want to roll back decades of economic and social progress. So that is first and foremost defensive. In terms of a progressive community, I do think a lot of independent organizing can go on at the state levels and on different issues and around different issues to make sure that there is movement. So coming out of these next two years, there is the groundwork laid. I think you can see some inside-outside strategy, not to get too nitty-gritty here, but the, inside the House, a lot of these blue dogs lost so that the caucus inside the House is more progressive and there are good legislators in there who want to work with movements around the country to help build their capacity there are small things like the executive i mentioned we talked about the epa but also to give elizabeth warren at the consumer protection financial bureau strength and support that is something obama can do through rulemaking and he can use his rulemaking authority to allow labor to find organizing tools that won't come through legislation so the Congress may be in gridlock, but you want to lay the groundwork for what could emerge, both in a defensive but a potentially offensive uh, way. And I think um, making Afghanistan an electoral issue heading into 2012 is key, so that it's not just a majority view that we should move and find a way out, but it's something that people will vote on, so it sends a signal to a president that he has support to counter military establishment forces. Uh, yes, uh, Katrina, I'm a big fan of the Nation magazine. Great, great. I love the art section and the book section. It's great. something I look forward to uh, every week. But my, my question is about politics, and it's about Obama. And uh, I don't know if you caught the 60, minute, uh, 60 Minutes interview uh, last week or so, um, where he was asked uh, about his appearance on 
you know, some of these other venues like the John Stewart show, the Daily Show. And uh, it, it sounded as if he was defending that, um, but it sounded to me like that was his media team talking because he was sort of saying, well, it's sort of what you have to do today. Yeah. And I felt very daunted by that because I thought, first of all, um, buddy, you're the guy who got the job. You have another two years. And he acted as if, you know, press conferences were a thing of the past. You know, it used to be that the media would come and you could do a press conference. And I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't, my question also is, what do you think of that? Why isn't he talking to the American people? Why, I was waiting a few weeks ago when they announced that the new uh, rules of some of this health care reform was going to kick in. Where was his talk to the American right, people right. about it? Why don't the Democrats get together and start talking a little more and bragging a little more? Right. And, you know, it took these young young people, uh, certainly younger than I am, and, and and, and, and yourself, uh, to put up this website in a couple of days called, I'm sure you know about it, it's what the F has Obama done uh, yeah. lately or since he's been in office, and people have been going to it like crazy, including myself. You know, and these guys came up with this idea in just a couple of days. Okay, yeah, so, let's do this. No, so I mean, I listen. My question is, yeah. you know, what are your thoughts about Obama the, just doing the old-fashioned Reagan thing and going, hello, my fellow Americans, you know, we're going to talk this week about what so, we're doing. Communica communication deficit. Yeah. I can go in a number of ways on this one, but it was kind of startling to, you know, hear our president referred to as dude. <laughs> you know, the, whoa, okay. By um, John Stewart. By John Stewart. Right. And you don't want a diminishing president. On the other hand, this, I do believe that this is, uh, the, he is operating He's the first president to operate in a 36-7 media environment with all the social media and all of this. What's stunning is the campaign used it so brilliantly. And then in governing, there's been such a, a lapse, a failure to use it effectively. I found one of the most stunning moments on the John Stewart interview is when he said, you know, we've done a lot of good things. People just don't know about it. Well, you could argue that, you know, you got your progressives are not saying enough enough about the accomplishments or you got Fox demeaning and demonizing you every day, but you got to be out there and find ways. And if it's not your, find a way that you are communicating, travel around the country. When he gets out of Washington, there's a little bit of the fire of the campaign. So tra get out. My view would be every week you should be out of Washington speaking to people and not, you know, in, in real ways, but also the young, the people who set up that website, mobilize those people because that is part of what his campaign was as well. It wasn't just Obama, Obama. Remember what was his line? You know, we are the we who brought you the we. You know, I mean, yeah, let's. We are the ones we were waiting. For I'm sorry. Them. I know there was, a, you know, but. <laughs> but we I mean, the there was a sense we. of we are the this is not just we. about me. We need, you know. And by the way, it is true that hope, you know, all this hope stuff. There is hope 2.0 and it's, you know, what we could be doing because hope didn't just begin in the snows of Iowa in 2008. There was something behind the emergence of someone like President Obama. And I think that needs to be factored into the media movement. Let's take one more question. Thank you. My compliments first on your article that just arrived today on a progressive game plan. Thank you. Uh, which I've read. Uh, what do we know about the so-called independent voter? Uh, the independent voter is determining our elections uh, regularly. 
And it seems to me with such polarization of the two sides that it would be hard to be independent unless you had nothing going on in your brain. And, uh, you know, you said it better than I could. No, I mean, I mean that's... But don't don't political scientists generally say that there are really essentially no independent voters, that that's a name that... That's been given yes, to those. To, to those that they're either essentially always vote Republican or almost always vote Democrat, but... And there, there were re remarkably few, few. genuine. I mean, on the other hand, I have to say, we had, a, I thought, a smart article by Deepak Bhargava, a really smart strategist, a few months ago. And I think it's so true that you can't map people along one ideological mm. spectrum. Right. You know, they'll have different entry points. And so I think it's about bringing people over to your side. You spoke of that. It's not just, you know, you do need to think of persuasion. Um, too often what goes on in this country in the talk of um, we got to rush to the center, whatever the center is. The center is always shifting goalpost. I say, you know, you've got to speak with passion and conviction. And on some level, that's what independent voters, as much as they're mapped out, respond to. Not polling, not this, but to a sense of that conviction. And I think um, that's where... But you're right. It is hard to believe. And I have to say, sitting where I sit, I sometimes wish I was an independent voter. There's so much attention, so much goes on for the independent voter. We're written off, you know. And it's a, but I think it's more a construct than a reality. Um, Katrina, let me ask you one last question before we close for the night. If you weren't doing this, if you weren't editing the nation, what is the one thing in the world you'd most want to be doing? <laughs> truly. I know, truly. <laughs> truly. Run, running for office if the system wasn't so difficult and tough and oh. uh, well, I would be yeah um, but it's it's a, it's the problem is as we talk about all the reforms and stuff the system as is is as it is and um, I think it's it's tough to enter it so I'm gonna work to reform it and down the road well, the art of the possible and well, the I would, art of changing the possible will somehow collide and I, I will find a way. I would think that in our New York State I would be wonderful to see you running for something and I will go home back to New York and tell Mr. Trillin that <laughs> his pinko rag is in very good hands. Thank you <laughs> thank very you. much. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Katrina Vanden Heuvel in conversation with Adam Gopnik. This program was recorded at the Herbst Theater in San Francisco on November 17, 2010. These broadcasts are produced by City Arts and Lectures in association with KQED Public Radio, San Francisco. The executive producer is Sidney Goldstein. The production assistants are Holly Mulder-Wolan and Amanda Marlowe. The post-production director is Nina Thorson. Herbst Theatre Stage Managers, John Bott and Masai Aitoku. Theatre Sound Engineer, Dave Montijo. The recording engineers are Jane Heaven and Paul Lancour. The engineering supervisor is Monte Carlos. Theme music composed and performed by Pat Gleason. City Arts and Lectures programs are supported by Grants for the Arts of the San Francisco Hotel Tax Fund. Additional funding provided by the Wallace Alexander Grabodi Foundation, the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund, the Mimi and Peter Haas Fund, the Bernard Osher Foundation, and the Friends of City Arts and Lectures.
Support for recording and post-production of City Arts and Lectures is provided by Robert Mailer Anderson and Nicola Miner. For more information and a list of our upcoming programs, visit our website, cityarts.net. That's cityarts.net. For City Arts and Lectures and KQED Public Radio, I'm Linda Hunt. City Arts and Lectures will be on again Tuesday night at 8. Local underwriting is provided by the Contemporary Jewish Museum, hosting a KQED KTEH member day during their new exhibition, Curious George Saves the Day, The Art of Margaret and H.A. Ray. Saturday, January 22nd. Details at kqed.org slash member day. Tony, wary. It is the uh, one dog in a sled team that's not really pulling. <laughs> I'm Richard Schur. Take a lighthearted stroll with us each week through lexicon, literature, and libretto as we do our best to let the language provide the laughter. That's Says You from NPR. Says You this afternoon.